Some people say I'm not a worshiper. I don't believe in God, so I don't worship. But the truth is that everyone everywhere is unceasingly worshiping. You can no more stop worshiping than you can stop breathing. Worship is the constant state of the human heart as we pour out our lives towards someone or something. We all worship. The only question is, what do you worship? It is the outpouring of all that you are into that which you hold in highest regard. This series is a study in glory. Only Jesus is worthy. Our posture in his presence. goodness 9 30 how you guys doing this morning good i hope you're excited to worship jesus you guys look tired it is good to see you at 9 30 a.m i don't know about you i got three kids they're cute and very naughty and so i'm running on zero hours of sleep and just the joy of what god is doing in this church uh, literally last night we had the team party and how many of you guys came out for that Yes, and uh, it was awesome until God sent rain from heaven, and, uh, and I'm not going to lie, that crazy rain sent us into this corner of the place we met where we worshiped in one of the most powerful worship experiences that I have ever been part of. It was so beautiful what God did with that moment, and so I'm just buzzing on everything that God is doing. Um, it, actually, earlier, earlier in this week, um, there was a young adults barbecue, and and, uh, I don't know if you guys heard about this, but we had 97 young adults show up for that barbecue. Yeah, that is awesome, which is fully like 30 more, 30 more people than normally come. And now, to be honest, we were giving away like a Nintendo Switch for free, and so the jury's still out on whether like the Holy Spirit is moving or like <laughs> takers are just trying to get freebies. Um, but honestly, it was just a time to have fun, to hang out, and then I was like, I'm going to preach the gospel to these guys. And so we ended up sharing the gospel and sharing how God is moving in people's lives. And I actually realized as I was talking about these three stories of young adults in our church that you guys have not heard a lot of these stories. And so I just want to share them with you. And the first one is this. Um, it's just this beautiful picture of like when grace actually grabs someone's heart, how they turn around and start to give themselves to Jesus. The first one is this gal named Aspen. And you guys know her? Aspen Dean, uh, she's this young adult. And I met her when she was like 15, right? She had just moved here from England. And uh, that's its own problem, right? Like, just like, why? And she was struggling with deep and dark loneliness. Nobody pouring into her life, particularly not even her family, not even her own parents. Just out of the picture, on her own. And then through experiencing the gospel of grace here at Rise, now looking at her years later, she is pouring herself out every single week to teenage girls in our church. And that is the power of grace on her life. Uh, I, I talked about um, this guy named Garrett in our church. Any of you guys know Garrett? Uh, Garrett is my dude, and you need to know about Garrett because his family was burnt on the church, just deeply hurt before COVID started and weren't sure they were ever coming back. And then Garrett tasted grace here at Rise during the pandemic, and so much so that when everything was crazy and they said, hey, look, his parents were like, we don't know if you should be exposing yourself, like, we don't know if you should go to church and then be at home. He said, look, I will sleep in my car seven days a week if it means that I can be with Jesus twice a week. That is the power of grace on a dude's life. Yeah, and we can celebrate that grace. We can celebrate what Jesus is doing. And the last one's this guy named Anthony. Uh, we call him Tony. 
and he's like the sweetest dude. Uh, but when I met him, he was like super far from God, dude. Just like, I don't want anything, don't talk to me about Jesus, but you guys serve free coffee and we're hanging out in a coffee shop, so I'm there. And so he joined our young adult small group when it was like five people and weird. And uh, so he's hanging out and like, I didn't even know what kept him there. But then he got in this crazy car accident where it almost took his life and God grabbed his heart in that moment and said, I have saved you by grace and your life is mine. And he turns around and this guy who was literally like, just come in, get the free coffee, hang out, go out, never wanted to be part of it. He is here late till like 11.30 p.m. here at the building, literally scrubbing the floors for Jesus. You cannot stop this guy from serving Jesus as his slave because his heart was won by grace. Have you ever met somebody whose heart was so won by grace that you could not stop them from pouring out their life? You met somebody like that? Man, that is my heart for you. Because here's what I believe. When grace powerfully grabs a human heart, the result is a powerful outpouring of that heart for Jesus. That is what happens. And and many of you are here and you've never tasted that grace. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the Bible so that you would experience it today. Um, We are finishing out this tremendous series on worship called Worthy. And every week we've talked about a specific phrase or a specific idea, and this week's phrase is outpouring. Outpouring. What is worship? It is an outpouring of our hearts, of our lives. Open a Bible to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 is where we're going. If you don't have a Bible, I see some of you guys looking around. There's an app on your phone. You can look up the Bible app. You can grab a Bible from the tables in between the seats. It's about three quarters of the way in on that Bible. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and that's where we're going. If you see John, come on back. New to the Bible. Love seeing people open the Bible. Let's get into chapter 7. I'm not going to go deeply on this first portion, starting in verse 28, but I do need you to get the context. So look with me, beginning in verse 28 of our text today. It says this, I tell you, this is Jesus talking, among those born of women, none is greater than John. This is Jesus' cousin. He was a prophet. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, And this is important, and the tax collectors too. These are the worst, most vile kinds of sinners. They declare God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sing a dirge, and you did not weep. For, the, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man, that's Jesus, has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, and hear these words a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Here's what's happening in this passage. We talked about that we need to like pour ourselves out for Jesus. But listen, you're never going to pour yourself out for Jesus until you know that he has poured himself out for you. And what Jesus is doing here is he's basically elevating and affirming a guy named John. And John was baptizing even the worst kinds of sinners. And so the religious elite, you know, the establishment, the important people, 
who all had it together and they were like, man, we don't need your grace. We don't need this Jesus. We want to get rid of Jesus. They looked at that and they said, don't affirm John. He's baptizing sinners. And they weren't pumped on that because Jesus didn't dance to their tune. And Jesus turned around. He's like, no, I'm going to affirm him because I am essentially we're getting from this text that he is a friend of sinners. And here's what I need you to see first before we pour ourselves out for Jesus, that we need to know that Jesus was consumed by a love for the lost. Jesus was consumed. Did you know this? Jesus actually cares. Jesus' mission was always to move towards and to transform sinners. But here are the Pharisees put in stark contrast, and what do they do? Well, R.C. Sproul tells us this on his commentary in this passage. He's like, the Pharisees believed in salvation by segregation. They're like, we don't want to have anything to do with these sinners that Jesus loves. Now, we read a text like this, and we see the power of Jesus' love for sinners, and, and most of us think, when we read this story, I am like the nice people, or I'm Jesus, right? Don't we do that? You ever, like, read a text of the Bible, and you're like, so I'm the good guy, and then the bad guys are over here, and they're named the Pharisees. But here's the reality. When we read texts like this, I want you to see this. We're seeing that Jesus has a love for sinners, but actually we need to find ourselves in the Pharisees. So you see, the Pharisees wanted to be separate from sinners, and if we are honest, none of us, if you're a Christian here today and you're familiar with these terms, none of us would ever say, like, I'm a Pharisee. Right? How many of you guys say, I'm like, I'm for sure a Pharisee. Like, that's me. Like, I just hate sinners. That's who I am. I don't get the heart of Jesus. None of us say that. In fact, I don't say that. But what I have noticed uh, recently is um, I'm, I'm actually what you would call in, um, you know, uh, in today's terms, a nerd. I am an actual nerd. And by this, I mean like nerd at a level that is actually unfortunate. Um, I'm a person who listens to more podcasts than like is responsible, okay? Like I'm like playing with my kids. My, thinks, my wife thinks I'm taking care of, uh, care of them. And I have like earbuds in hidden, you know, like under my beanie. And she's like, uh, you know, like, what are you doing? I'm like, nothing, you know, like listening to podcasts. And then I'll stop the podcast and like flip over to like Audible because some theological question will come up in my mind. And I'll listen to like a whole book or or two to like answer the question so I can finish the podcast so I actually know what the dude is talking about. Any of you guys like nerd level like this? I'm like very nerdy and very weird and it, it is unfortunate. But what I have found is I get really attracted to uh, Bible teachers, right? I'm a person who I, I, you guys follow people on social media, sports players, all that stuff. Like I follow theological nerds and the particular tribe or like group of theological nerds that I tend to follow and listen to and podcast and read and all of the things are a tribe of people that are really good at theology, but the Lord has convicted me recently they're actually really bad at loving lost people. And what happens, and I've actually noticed this, not because I'm just nitpicking them, but the truth is because as I listen to all these theological podcasts, I have begun to start to nitpick churches, to look at other churches, to look at other movements and be like, man, are they really getting it theologically? Is their church structure really what it ought to be? What do they do with their budget, right? And I like study this stuff and I care about it, but then what I end up doing is navel gazing rather than soul seeking, I tend to find myself doing this, and here's what you know. You know a Christian has lost sight of the mission and heart of Jesus when they waste time in endless theological and methodological hair splitting. 
That is the truth. I used to work for Benchmade Knife Company, and I spent time sharpening knives for 12 hours a day, and it was a whole thing, and it was, it was like a true assembly line, right? And so we had quotas. I'm like, I'm sharpening all these. And there were two guys who would sharpen and work these machines with me, and it would all often happen where I'd be sharpening, and those two would like stop because they were knife nerds, and they would begin to like pontificate on the quality of the designer from Benchmade high up who like designed this or that knife. And they'd be like, oh man, is this one better and that one better? And I would always see like the manager come around and be like, hey fellas, like how are we doing this morning? We have like 6,000 knives to sharpen. Like what are you guys doing? And they're like, oh, don't worry. We're not like on our phones. We're not messing around. What we're doing here is we are talking about knives and we are evaluating the quality of the different designs of the knives. Like I, I like that you guys love knives, but like your job is actually to sharpen the knives, right? And, and in the same way, oftentimes we as Christians can just be navel gazing when our job is to be soul seeking, to share the heart of Jesus and disciple the lost, to pour ourselves out because we have a God who has poured himself out on the cross for sinners. Amen? And then we see in this passage, and this is where the meat comes in. We're actually going to now move into kind of what feels like a new section, but the truth is, in the original text, there was no headings, and there was no separation between verse 35 and verse 36, and what you should feel is a rising tension. Look at verse 36. So Jesus loves sinners, and Pharisees, do they like sinners? Nope. Verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. Uh-oh. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. What do you feel in this moment? Literally, you should hear the like, <whistles> like the whole like Western, like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? That's what Luke is doing right now, right? He's saying this is, this is going to be tense. And look, it only gets worse, verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Uh-oh. Here is Jesus who loves sinners. Here is the Pharisee who is not a friend of sinners. And here is a what? A sinner. Uh, we don't know what uh, her sin is. All we get is this term sinner, uh, but the commentators will tell you that if they are identifying her as a sinner, um, it is because she is probably a professional sinner. She is notorious. She is known. The only thing, we, we don't even get her name. Her reputation is she is a sinner. One like, you know, like 300-year-old commentator uh, said she was probably a hussy. That's like, I was like, wow, this is like in a Bible book, how the word hussy, Okay. Verse 38, and standing behind him, Jesus, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Did you guys see what just happened there? Listen, this is an insanely intense moment, and here comes this lady, and we look at what she does. You can imagine that all the men in this room are just aghast and purely silent. There is not a word happening as she does this pretty outrageous performance of doing three things. She evidently has some background with Jesus where he has poured out his love on her because now she pours out on him. And I want you to see that she pours out three things. Here's the first one. She pours out her safety. 
For her to come into a Pharisee's house was at least very bold, right? Because here she is. They have no business being here. She has no way of getting in. How did she even get in? So it's at least very bold. But if you understand um, the Old Testament and you understand the rules of the law, particularly in Second Temple Judaism, this could come at cost to her very life. Because Pharisees often were known for stoning sinners like her. And, and here's the deal. I want you to see this, that at cost to her own life, at risk of her own safety. She's willing to pour her safety out because she knows that Jesus is in there. And if it means costing my safety, I'm willing to go there because I need to be with Jesus and I need to pour out on Jesus. And this matters a lot right now because we are in a culture that absolutely obsesses over and worships safety. And you are seeing the conversations happen right now where it's starting all over again, man. Are we going to shut things down? All of this stuff. And, and to be perfectly honest, of course, there is, there is a lot of good to that. There is a lot of good to safety in regards to pandemic, especially when it concerns the most vulnerable and people who are elderly and who, for whom we are accountable to Jesus to take care of. Amen? Like, that's actually a good thing. But if we're not careful, we can begin to be discipled by our culture's response to a pandemic when we should be pouring out on Jesus. Look, she goes out of her way to pour out on Jesus. And here's the deal. Christians from this time forward were never called to worship our own self-preservation. We were never called to that. We instead, as the church, are marked by self-abandonment. I think of the Moravian missionaries. There's uh, a historical movement that happened over in Europe in the Moravian region. And uh, Count Zinzendorf reaching all these people by grace, sharing the gospel to young men. And they begin to uh, hear the gospel. They have their hearts wrecked. And they get a call to go to the West Indies, which was dangerous. And they were going to go over there to plant churches because there were no Christians. And we're not sure that the history gets sketchy at this point, but legend has it that these two young men, probably 18, 19, 20, decide we have to plant this church. This is what God called us to do. And so the only way over there is you have to be a slave. So they sold themselves into slavery. Legend has it they sold themselves in slavery and on the slave ship they waved goodbye to their friends and they said, man, we're doing this for the glory of the Lamb. That is what they want to do. Christians have never been marked by self-preservation, but we have always been marked by self-abandonment for the mission and the glory of Jesus. And so may we be a people like this woman. The second thing she pours out is what? Her dignity. She pours out her dignity. Uh, now, uh, what we need to see in this passage is, and that we miss a little bit, she lets down her hair. She lets down her hair in order to cleanse the feet of Jesus. This was considered sort of a sensuous and immodest move in that culture. This was considered immodest. And so here she is, she's letting down her hair. And the reason why it was immodest is because hair is a depiction of the apex of femininity, of beauty, something for your husband and so forth. And so here she is taking the height of her beauty. And what does she do? She begins to cleanse between the feet of Jesus. And we do miss this as well. Because this would be strange and sort of obscure in our culture. But in their culture, this was ignominious. The feet were like considered the grossest part of the human body because you were wearing sandals and walking through feces. 
And here she is. She takes her highest and places it and cleanses him at the lowest place. Now, there is truth where she's, you know, the men would lean on these lower tables, and so the feet are probably the most accessible, but that's not why she's doing it. She is doing it because she wants to pour out even her dignity before Jesus. I think of an Old Testament passage, 2 Samuel 6, and what happens is David is the, the, the new king, and essentially he is the king who has a heart for God, and they're uh, taking the Ark of the Covenant to the city of God, and the Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of God. And there they worship God on the way. And David himself stands up and he becomes the foremost worshiper. Why? Because he strips down to a linen ephod, which if you don't know what that is, that's ancient language for like underpants, bro. Like he is there in his his undergarments and he is dancing before the Lord and his wife sees it, the uh, the daughter of the previous king, and she is not pumped. And she's like, what are you doing? See how the king honors himself in front of all these servants and you look like a fool. And he responds with this, I will make myself even more contemptible than this. He's like, I will become, in some translations, even more undignified before God. And I will be abased in your eyes. Let me ask you this. When it comes to worship, is there anything that is beneath you? Is there any form of worship that is beneath you? Is there any service you could give to our Lord Jesus Christ if you are a believer in him that is beneath you? Um, I worked with my wife's cousin for a while, and he was this rad, like, construction dude, but he had gone to Bible college at, um, uh, in Murrieta, California, at Calvary Chapel Bible College. You guys know that, that college? It's a pretty sick and popular college, and, and we we're both big fans of the movement leader who had started that thing named Chuck Smith. Um, any Chuck Smith fans here? Okay, cool. You guys are still alive from the 70s, so it's good to see you. Um, I love him because I followed his movement. He loved him because he followed his teachings. And he went to this Bible school. I was like, did you ever see Chuck? He's like, Papa Chuck? He's like, of course I saw Papa Chuck. He's like, but it was the darndest thing. Because where I I had pictured him, because you picture a movement leader doing what? in the like ivory tower studying the Torah, right? Like just going deep in the Hebrew and all that stuff. You picture him like proclaiming the word from the lectern. You picture him leading the team that is launching churches and all this stuff, but he didn't see him there. He saw him on hands and knees in the cafeteria scrubbing floors. This is Chuck Smith. I'm going like the Chuck Smith? You sure you didn't see a different guy? And he's like, no, it was Chuck Smith. Or he would see him outside, up in the palm trees with the boys whose job it was to clip the palm trees, discipling them and clipping the trees. Why would a movement leader do this? Because he was making a statement that if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you've got to become the least. And there is nothing beneath us as no matter who you are or how well you know the word, to serve and to worship Jesus is to go to the lowest place. And so she pours out her dignity. And then the third thing we see is actually she pours out her money. She pours out her dignity, and then she pours out her money. This alabaster jar was actually filled with an expensive ointment. In fact, R.C. Sproul in his commentary says, man, the only reason they probably even let this, you know, hussy in is because she had this expensive jar, he speculates. Like, there's no other way. They had bouncers at the door to parties like this. 
Like only important people allowed. And so she walks up and Sproul says, there's no other way that she's probably finally dressed for the occasion and attractive and has this expensive gift. So like, oh, you have money. You must be part of this party. And so she comes in with this expensive thing and it's lost on us. But there's actually another passage where another different woman later in the gospel, multiple women did the same kind of thing, actually crack open a similar alabaster jar. And Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, is aghast that she would pour this out on Jesus. Jesus because he says it's worth a year's wages. This would be the equivalent of like 50, 60,000 in our day. Now, we don't know how much this lady's jar is worth, but we know that it's expensive based on all of the research. And so we need to talk about this, that when we worship, it always involves our wallet. When we were, there's not a lot of amens on that one right there. You guys are like, it's 930 and I'm hearing a pastor talk about finances right now. And listen, um, the truth is a lot of pastors don't like to talk about money because honestly, they are afraid and we are afraid that it's going to offend people or turn them off. But let me tell you this, I really don't care what you think about me, but I do care that you experience the fullness of worshiping Jesus. And like, honestly, our church is not like, hey man, let's pass the plate and like get wealthy and all of this stuff. We are so extremely financially healthy and we have such good leadership. Like I could never talk about money, but that would make me a coward. And the truth is it would be under discipling our church. She pours out her money because hear me on this, money is spiritual. You realize this, money is spiritual. Where your heart is, Jesus says, or excuse me, where your treasure is, he says, there your heart will be also. From the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, we see a super abundant God pouring out an abundance to his people. And the the crazy thing is because of the fall, we actually embrace this notion of scarcity. Like there is not enough and there is truth that we have these seasons and there are many of us who do not have enough. But even in light of that, we see after the fall of humanity, when we fell and plunged ourselves into sin, that the very first story is what? It's talking about worship as warfare, where two brothers are at each other's throat because of the way they worshiped with their wallets. And here we have the theology of worshiping with our wallet. It goes on and we see that the Old Testament people of God, they were called to give fully a tenth. And if you count numerous other types of offerings, 24% of their income to God. And this was just normative. This wasn't like, man, you really want me to give? Like maybe when I grow up in Christ or in like 30 years from now, maybe when I have enough money and all this stuff, it's like, no. Like if your heart is invested in God, you will invest your money in him. That is exactly what we see all through the Old Testament. Then we get to the New Testament. And I'll be honest, there is no command in the New Testament to, to give a tenth, to give 10% uh, you know, from your income and all that stuff. But here is the crazy thing. We see that the Old Testament people of God were willing to give all of this because their hearts were in Yahweh, God. Their hearts, they were willing to give all of this, but they didn't even know Jesus. They didn't have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we today, all God says is, look, be a joyful giver. Give to God from your first fruits. Give to God out of your worship. He's not interested in your money if you're not interested in giving to him. But the truth is, if you are a worshiper of Jesus, you have experienced infinitely more than all these people experience. You have experienced being face-to-face with the living Messiah, Jesus. And so how much more should we pour out before him? And it's not about a number, man. What it is, is it's, 
the heart of this woman here. It's where you say, man, if Jesus is my highest good, then money will not take his place. I am going to pour out for him. And maybe you don't have a heart for this yet. Look, I'm not here to condemn you, and, and I'm not interested in your money. But, but the truth is, if you love Jesus, your wallet will get saved, and you will give from the heart. Jim Elliott was a missionary to the Aka people in Ecuador, and this was an unreached people group. He was 28 years old and a very good preacher. He was born here in Portland and a very good preacher. And so everybody told him, man, you should go be a youth pastor, then go lead your own church, like climb the church ladder, do the whole thing. You are super good. And he said, yeah, I'm super good. And so what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to move to an unreached people group. I'm going to move to the Aka people. And he began to do ministry there with his wife and 10-month-old baby daughter. And as they were doing ministry, he began to reach these people and finally made contact. And you know what that people did? Through a misunderstanding and a fear of who he was with his white skin, they stabbed him in the heart. And he died at the end of a spear. And we uh, actually dug through his diaries. His wife, Elizabeth Elliot, many of you have read her books. She's a conference speaker. She is an amazing woman of God. She stayed and she actually reached that people. She reached the very men and women who killed her husband. And we find in his diaries as we dig through them this. He says it, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Man, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I want you to notice that she pours this alabaster flask, not so that it would like smell good to Peter and John. Like she clearly does not care what anyone else thinks. She's there at risk to her life. You know where she pours it? She pours it all out on Jesus. Some of us say, man, I want to give, but I want to give to the poor. I want to give to the needy, and that's a wonderful thing. And Jesus says, you always have the poor with you, and you can always give to them, and that is absolutely the heart of the church. That's another sermon. She actually pours it all on Jesus. Listen, I want to ask you this question. Do you think it's a waste to pour your money out on Jesus? I remember being 16, and when the, when the gospel grabbed my heart, I was at this retreat with other leaders, and uh, yeah, it was in the snow and all this stuff, and the most treasured thing to me at this age was I began to like coffee, and I remember having this cup of coffee, and I was freezing, and I was, I, I've never been a good sleeper. I'm up at five, and I'm out there by myself, and I felt like it was this crazy thing that I look back, I'm like, was that the Holy Spirit? But I felt this nudge in my heart where the Holy Spirit was like, pour out your cup of coffee, and I'm like, this was the last cup, Holy Spirit. <laughs> And I was like, but I realized that this was actually warfare for my worship in that moment. And as a 16-year-old kid thinking, you know, you don't have like a 401k at that age. You have what's in your hand, bro. And I remember pouring this cup out before the Lord and feeling the weight of it. But after that moment, feeling the sweetness of communion with Christ, that he is worth more than the best that this world has to offer if you do not give to Jesus, I'm not here to shame you. I just want you to ask, have I actually tasted his grace? And the last thing she pours out is her heart. Notice that um, here in the text, she pours out all this stuff, but one, one of the things that she actually cleanses Jesus' feet with, this is so interesting, is her tears. Her tears. Can you imagine crying enough to where you are soaking someone's feet with your tears? And she begins to cleanse his, you know what she is crying about there? 
Because if you don't know what she is crying about there, I want to share with you the gospel as we close. And actually, Jesus does it best, so let's finish out this passage. Why is she weeping? Why is she weeping? Verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, this is really creepy that Jesus is responding to his internal thoughts right there. <laughs> Just so you know, like God is reading your thoughts literally in this moment. Isn't that crazy? Just wild. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, well, say it, teacher. Verse 41, a certain money lender. I love that Jesus, he's like about to rebuke this dude, and his rebuke is a story. You notice that? Jesus is all about asking questions and telling stories. Verse 41, he tells a story. Once upon a time, a certain money lender had two debtors. When you guys have debt, don't raise your hand. <laughs> don't raise your hand. He had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. Um, that is the equivalent of two months' wages. And the other 50, that is the equivalent of 20 months' wages. When they, ha- when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, which was tradition that time, to kiss him on the cheek. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss not his cheek, but his feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, which was not costly, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Let me ask you this question. Do you have a gospel perspective? Listen, this this Pharisee guy, he's like, look, he doesn't know who this is. But Jesus, he turns the whole thing around by asking the question to him. He says in verse 44, did you catch it? Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Let me ask you, how do you look at the world? How do you look at people? How do you look at yourself? There are three lenses that we can look with. Jesus is asking, what is your lens? Do you see this woman? How do you see reality? The first lens is this, lawlessness. This is the lens of our culture, which says there is no moral higher standard. It's lawlessness. We call this the liberal perspective. It denies the existence of any moral law above us. And so we just kind of close our eyes. We're saying, man, there's no one above me. I don't answer to anyone. We've come from nothing, from primordial soup. We're going nowhere when we die. So what does it matter what I pour my life out on in between? This is like my son, Remy, we used to do uh, like hide and seek. I'd be like, Remy, like go hide and, and I'll find you. And what he would do is he'd lay right in the middle of the room with his eyes closed like this. Like, okay, daddy, go. And I'm like, buddy, I can see. <laughs> like, You're in the middle of the room, bro. We close our eyes to the reality of morality. And so we think that our shame is there alleviated. That's the, that's the mindset of lawlessness. The second lens is legalism, and that is the lens of Simon. And what it says is if you measure up, if you accomplish things, if you are morally above reproach, then what? You're filled with pride. I did it. But what happens if you don't measure up? 
Well, it's despair, and you're outside, and we'll have nothing to do with you. This is the lens of legalism, but Jesus here, he has the lens, not of lawlessness, not of legalism, but he has the lens of the gospel. And he wants to pour himself out. And if you don't know what the gospel is, it means good news. And it is the motivation that changes the human heart that says, anything my Lord wants, I will pour out for him. Because he has poured out his blood for me to cleanse me of my sin on a cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, what does it say? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became poor for our sakes, another verse says, that we might become rich in him, not financially rich, something infinitely higher and better, and that is knowing the sweetness of his grace. The gospel, Tim Keller says, is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe Yet, at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Amen? Listen, this is the good news. And listen, if you're a Christian, is your heart broken by this good news? Have you recognized the outpouring of Jesus and thus want to pour yourself out for him? Because here is the reality, and we're closing now with this, that when the lightning of grace strikes, a thunderous outpouring follows. You remember being a kid, and we rarely get thunderstorms here, in the Northwest if you grew up here, and what would you do? You turn off all the lights and you sit in the living room and you're like looking out and you're waiting for that lightning to strike and then what would you do when you saw that flash? You'd start counting, right? Because you're anticipating what? The sound of thunder. The natural result, the constant thing that follows when we have the lightning of grace strike our hearts as we thunderously outpour our lives. We give our dignity, we give our safety, we give our money, and we give our hearts because we have known the one who has given all. There is this guy that my wife grew up with named Bill. And uh, she had gone to this church her whole life, and so had he, and his family was awesome. And they were the quintessential awesome church family. You know those people even here at Rise that just like big smiles. They're the ones, they, they, they have all the right things to say. They're the encouragers. And, he, and above it all, he was a police officer. And man, just this awesome, awesome guy. But he was hiding something. That as he, he was in this drug unit, as he would like confiscate these drugs, he actually ended up spiraling backwards. And in the privacy at work, he actually began to take and become re-addicted to all these drugs. And he spiraled into the deepest depths imaginable. And God spoke to his heart and said, man, you think that I can't meet you in the darkest of places? I am a God who loves people at their darkest I don't care about all your good deeds. I see who you really are, and I want to pour out my grace on you there. And this dude got up, and he came clean. He confessed to his wife. He confessed to his job. He lost his job. He came forward and told the whole church. He laid his life down and poured it all out before Jesus. So much so that after this point in his life, whenever he would talk about the gospel, you, you ever meet somebody, they talk about the gospel, they're full of energy or whatever, but this guy, he could, he could barely get it out. He was trembling every time. And Lindsay says he would just weep. And there was more words in his weeping as he poured out his heart than any 
individual word he could say. And so he would weep and weep and just share the gospel. He sold all of his possessions and literally moved to Uganda and opened up an orphanage and cleans the feet of tiny children who have less. They are literally the lowest possible income imaginable. And he pours his life out literally to this day. That is what he's doing. When grace grabs your heart, when you experience an outpouring of grace, you know what you want to do? You want to pour your life out for Jesus. And so we are going to do that right now. As we enter a time of worship, uh, you have a decision to make. And we offer um, really decisions even in this room. Uh, And if you're a believer, particularly, we offer communion. And what communion is, is it's at the table, the bread and the cup representing the broken body and poured out blood, the poured out blood, the poured out blood of Jesus. And we remember the gospel. And what you need to do there if you are a Christian today is maybe you need to pour your heart out before Jesus and receive his forgiveness yet again. Maybe you're not a Christian. You're saying this is only for believers. No, you can get saved today and you can give your heart to Jesus and you can experience grace and you can pour your life out in communion for the first time today. Some of you need to go back to our response room and maybe what you need to pour out is your, your confession. Man, like I need prayer for this in my life. I am struggling. Maybe it's not something deep and dark. You're just like, man, I have this need and you need to pour out your need before Jesus. You need to pour out the need of someone you love and your family who is struggling, somebody who doesn't know Jesus and you need to go back there and you need to pour your heart out in prayer. And then lastly, many of you, if you are not a person who gives to Jesus, I'm not even talking about giving to rise, but give directly to Jesus. We offer the opportunity to give every single week, not because we need your money, but because God wants your heart. Would you give perhaps for the first time? Maybe you set up permanent giving and say, man, I don't know where I'm going to get this money, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to pour my life out as an offering to Jesus and see what he does to experience the fullness of worship today. And all of us, we need to make a decision for Christ today as we sing. Don't just read the words. Contemplate, Lord, what is my next step? Would you stand with me and can we sing to Jesus?